make that money. DraftKings session number 15, UFC 243, Whitaker versus Adesanya. Spectate while your pockets accumulate. Make that money. DraftKings session number 15. I'm your host, Uber Mike, and we're here to break down another pay-per-view card taking place down under in Australia. We have UFC 243. We have 11 bouts, and we have money to make in our respective DraftKings. Or if you're a betting man, you got to go hit them bookies over the head so you can make that money. Quick channel business. So I know y'all talked about adding a betting component to these respective episodes that is in the works. I will let you know very soon when I'll have that release. Also as well, if you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, hit up the different uh, social medias I have down there in regards to Instagram, Twitter and such. Let's build this community up, man. Go ahead, like this video as well, man. Let's get the whole MMA community in this spot so we can make that money plain and simple. So with no further ado, let's go ahead, let's jump into the breakdown of UFC 243 taking place this Saturday. So in the main event, we have Robert the Reaper Whitaker at the DraftKings price of 8200 versus Israel Adesanya at the DraftKings price of 8000 And looking at Robert Whitaker, he's been out for a hot minute now. Uh, I believe it's been like a year and eight months or so since he last fought against Yoel Romero in UFC 225 in Chicago. And he was slated to fight Kevin Gasolum the same night Israel fought Anderson Silva. But then I believe he had like a hernia injury or something of that sort fight day. So been out for a super long time. And now he's coming back into his home country to put on a show for the Aussie fans. And what Robert Whitaker brings to this respective bout is a diverse striking game. If you look at him, if you look at his punching perspective, he pops a jab, throws a, a straight right, throws a left hook. His left hook is his best punch. It's super quick, it's super snappy, and at the same time, the way he sets it up going forward and backwards, it's pretty damn creative. In regards to his kicks, he throws teep kicks, has these high head kicks that he, he throws from different angles and such. You could see it in full display in the second Yoel Romero bout whenever... He would pop a jab to the body, pop to the chest, and then he would like lean. He always goes on a on an angle whenever he throws the head kicks, which makes him pretty sneaky. And also, he also throws overhand shots with his hands, like overhand left, overhand right. But he just doesn't throw them like a marauder or some kind of bum. Like he throws them over the top, he angles them, and he creates those different kind of angles as well. Looking at the respective weaknesses of Robert, it's the inactivity. He's been out for a super long time. And I wouldn't say the inactivity is like a complete weakness on his point because it could be a super great thing. Because if you looked at that Yoel Romero bout, that boy got beat from pillar to post. Got dropped, I believe, like four times or something. And if you look at the DK scoring, I believe Yoel outscored him. A loser outscoring the winner of the respective bout. So, I mean, whether you thought Yoel won or not, that's up to you. But the time off, obviously, with the momentum and all these middleweights coming up and such, can be a bit of a concern. But then at the same time, you can look at it as a positive as, okay, Robert has been training because he did have a respective training camp leading up to fighting Kelvin Gaslam. At the same time as well, Robert healed from all his, you know, nicks and knacks and things of that sort. So he's coming in here freshed and revived before he has to go through the killer's role of the middleweight division if he happens to win this respective bout. Also, another thing that was mentioned as well is Robert Whitaker can bring wrestling into the bout. And looking into the tape and in the fight metrics, the last time Robert Whitaker landed a successful takedown was when he fought Uriah Hall. And I believe that was like way, way, way back. I would say like 2015, 2016 or so. And he's also attempted takedowns against Clint Hester. If you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. And a guy named Natal, I believe. But the wrestling dynamic can be brought in. But Robert Whitaker's wrestling defense is super impressive. His wrestling offense, I don't really see him employing this in this respective bout just due to him not doing it in the past. And then at the same time, you got to keep in mind, wrestling is taxing. It is taxing. So you have to be very, very conscientious of how you're going to use that, especially in a five-round bout 
when you've been out of the game for about a year and eight months and you're facing this momentum train, Israel Adesanya. And with Israel Adesanya, this guy has been super duper active. I believe he was he got into UFC like early 2018 and he's been fighting like every two to three months and he's just been handling business. He's been bringing swag to the game and things of that sort. But we're not here to talk about swag. We're here to break down the skills. Looking at the skills of Israel Adesanya, as you can see from the metric box down there, six foot three, 80 inch reach, super tall, long kickboxer. Has a lot of kickboxing matches, boxing matches, and MMA matches as well. Not as much as Robert Whitaker, but then just a lot of fight experience at that time. He's also 30 years old which is hard to believe Robert Whitaker is younger than Israel Adesanya. But this is just more to the point of the experience that Adesanya brings to the cage. Also, at the same time as well, Adesanya's striking game is where his bread is absolutely buttered. He can fight on the back foot. He can fight going forward. And he can fight from kicking range. And whenever you do look at his stand-up, he does pot shot at times. Like He likes to pop a jab, pop a straight, but he's extremely measured. Extremely measured aware of distance, faints, faints, faints. I'm going to emphasize that. This guy is bringing faints to the game. And if you don't know what faints is, like faints is more like, I'm going to make it pretty simple. Pretend like, you know, back in the day when the school bully went up to you, kind of booked at you and you went back or so. I mean, not that elementary, but faints that he brings in in order to get reactions out of his respective opponent and to see what openings are there and being able to download that information and capitalize it in the latter rounds is what makes this guy super, super, super duper phenomenal on the feet. At the, at the same time, from kicking range, he does pop a quick body kick, leg kick, things of that sort. But that's the one thing I really wanted to emphasize on Israel Adesanya's stand-up. Very measured, very aware, very slick. Very, very, very slick. And... If you were to go into his respective weaknesses, I would say it is the boxing range. When you watch the Kelvin Gaslam fight, Kelvin Gaslam, I don't know why people were disrespecting him. I think he's a really good middleweight contender. In fact, just my opinion, the night before he fought Robert Whitaker, I thought Gaslam was going to finish Whitaker. But anyway, I digress. Looking at what Gaslam brought to that fight, Gaslam was able to get inside Israel's respective boxing range and basically wobbled him on two occasions i believe he got close to being knocked down in the first round of that five round war that he had with israel and then i believe in the fourth round yeah he caught him with a head kick which makes sense like when have we ever seen israel i mean rob uh, kelvin gaslam throw a head kick like that but the thing with israel is people like to compare him to anderson silva which i could see where those comparisons come from but in regards to boxing Anderson Silva was way more slicker with the boxing department than Israel Adesanya. And I see that's where Israel kind of struggles a bit. Just because whenever opponents do get in his face, make the fight grimy, make it ugly, things of that nature, he doesn't have enough time to, let's say, process. Which makes sense. You don't want him to be out there and pot shot you and pick you to death like he did Brad Tavares or Rob Wilkerson or Derek Brunson whenever he wasn't able to get his takedowns. But, uh... That is something that is definitely exploitable in Israel Adesanya's game. At the same time as well, he does this thing where like he leans his head back a lot of times. It's because he trusts his footwork, his awareness and such. doesn't really try to keep like a high guard or anything of that sort or try to keep his hands up. Just leans back. And follow-up strikes, which Kelvin Gaslam did show in his respective bouts, can cause issues for Israel Adesanya if he decides to rely on that same defensive tactic in this respective bout. People bring in the wrestling, but then looking at from the Rob Wilkinson fight to the Marvin Fattori fight where like his wrestling was kind of like exposed to now like the Derek Brunson fight and even the Kevin Gaston. Kevin Gaston got him down once, but I'm just saying Israel Adesanya's takedown defense is fine for this respective bout. I think it's good. I think Whitaker, if he does go for a takedown, he may get one, but I don't see Robert Whitaker turning into a Khabib and taking Israel down consecutively time after time after time at the same time too going back to that Kelvin Gaslam thing that I was speaking about in regards to him being hittable and weaving back and things of that sort Israel Adesanya takes me as a cerebral guy not saying that Robert Whitaker isn't but the fact that you've been fighting so much you've been in the octagon so many times the fact that you're able to go back and basically update your software from whatever respective bout you had I believe he's cleaned all that up 
He's had time off for a bit, so that's good for him as well. And both of these guys are coming in fresh as a daisy. But going into the respective fight breakdown for this main event, I have Israel Adesanya winning this bout by decision. And the reason I see that is in the beginning of the bout, I see Robert Whitaker having his moments. I see Robert Whitaker touching him, not consistently, but at times that, you know, will count or at times, you know, you're into the fight, you're emotionally invested. You think like, oh shit, he just touched him. He just hit them with this and that and such. But as the fight progresses, if Whitaker doesn't get Adesanya out of there or if Whitaker just doesn't show a new wrinkle that just messes up Adesanya's whole entire fight perspective of him going into this or if he just doesn't do something to shock Adesanya's system, I see Adesanya literally downloading all of Robert Whitaker's reactions whenever he faints and such and tries to break him down and everything. And then in the later rounds, when he starts to pot shot and put strikes together and such, I could see him putting it on Whitaker. Whitaker doesn't quit, as you saw from the Yoel Romero uh, fight, the second bout. Israel Adesanya in that Kevin Gaslam fight, peop, uh, in that Kevin Gaslam bout, people look at the glaring holes. I look at that heart he showed, especially in the fourth and fifth round. Especially in the fifth round, he knocked Gaslam down twice, took his back, was throwing punches at him and such. Just phenomenal, dude. So neither one of these guys are just going to go out like that unless... You know, someone lands that kill shot. But then overall, I take the momentum. I take the striking awareness. I take the striking finesse that he brings to this bout because this is something that Whitaker hasn't faced up until now. You could say Stephen Thompson, but then that bout was at 170 and Stephen Thompson and Adesanya fight two very different ways. But anyway, I see Israel Adesanya winning this bout by decision. Going into the DraftKings breakdown of this, 8,200 for Whitaker. 8,000 for Israel Adesanya. Both of these guys are absolutely playable. As you can tell, if you look at your respective money lines, they have this bout as a pick em if you're a betting guy, and the DraftKings pricing reflects that over here. So you can go either way. Whoever you believe is going to win, whoever you believe is going to get the job done. My lean's on Israel Adesanya. I love the $8,000 price. It's really great. And Pick and choose, man. Pick who you want. Pick who you believe in. Shoot, if you even want to stack this bout, if you're like in a head-to-head -head or in a double-up, because I don't see this fight going quick like last week's fight against Kandanir and Jack Hermanson, then you could do that as well. But just pick your guy. Put him in your lineup. Make that money. In the next bout, we have Dan Hooker at the DraftKings price of 8500 versus Ally Quinta at the DraftKings price of 7700 So Dan Hooker is coming off a very impressive knockout of James Vick at UFC San Antonio. I was there live, and he looked quick. He looked good in person. And looking back at the tape, especially the feint he hit uh, James Vick with and knocked him down and hurt him and finished him with, that was also impressive as well. I brought up feints. Again, because Dan Hooker trains with Israel Adesanya at City Kickboxing. And there was an interview I listened to in regards to like how they're not trying to be the best wrestlers or the best strikers or this and that. We're trying to change the game in regards to feints. So I'm not going to go too deep into that with Hooker. But then that's just something you got to keep in mind as well. But looking at Hooker, he used to fight at featherweight, 145 pounds, moved up to 155 pounds, and has looked phenomenal. Obviously, that Edson Barbosa fight, he took a beating, but showed absolute durability, absolute heart, and Edson's a mofo, man. He's a really good middle-of-the-road lightweight, and, I mean, Dan Hooker probably chew, bit off too much, bit off more than he could chew in that respective bout, but he's TKO Gilbert Burns, who's looked phenomenal. He's TKO Jim Miller. He's TKO... Uh, James Vick, as I mentioned before, is primarily a striker, long-rangey striker. He likes to use his length, likes to use his feints. Whenever he, uh, opponents come at him and they duck their head down, they try to take him down or try to like get underneath him or such, fires that knee up the middle so quick. Fires it fast, quick, hard, and it makes the opponent think twice. Like, hey, if you're going to come in here and try to wrestle me, you better be aware of this knee. Now, going to the weaknesses of Dan Hooker, what I see as a weakness is at times – doesn't really move his head. Relies on his foot movement and his length to kind of get him out of the way of punches. At the same time, he kind of keeps his hands low. If you watch the Gilbert Burns bout, Gilbert Burns was able to tag him a little bit in that bout. But then obviously Dan Hooker got the better of him. He slept him. But uh, that's something that's concerning in regards to Dan Hooker. Another thing as well, in his featherweight bouts, he lost 
some of those respective bouts by takedown. So he was taken down those respective bouts. He wasn't controlled because even though I'm going to the weakness of the takedowns, if you look at a strength, he does have jujitsu. He does attack chokes and submissions and such. Look at the, look back at the Mark Dia Casey fight. Mark Dia Casey took Dan Hooker down. Dan Hooker was able to get underneath his neck, choke him out, call it a night. But then a really wrestling heavy attack on Dan Hooker could make things possibly interesting. But then you got to think, Dan Hooker has been fighting at 155. He's been on fire, you know, uh, albeit the Edson Barbosa bout. But then you got to think at the same time, how much better has he gotten at his wrestling? And can his respective opponent, Ally Quinta, bring the level of wrestling to challenge him on the ground? And going into Ally Quinta, Ally Quinta has been in the UFC for a good minute. Formal uh, lightweight contender. He fought against Khabib Nurmagomedov at a very short notice. And, you know, he showed some heart there. He went all five rounds. Khabib, Khabib didn't finish him. And also, he had his moments in that bout where he was able to touch Khabib here and there, defend his takedowns and such. Right after that, he beat Kevin Lee. I don't really think too highly of Kevin Lee. But, I mean, the fact that Ali Quinta went in there as an underdog and handled business against Kevin Lee, albeit awesome. And... Recently took an L to Donald Cowboy Cerrone. And looking at the strengths of Ally Quinta, first and foremost, toughness. This is a real tough, durable guy. Really hard to finish. Really hard to finish him. You got to hit this guy with a kitchen sink, a baseball bat, and then you have to have like a 45 or something in order to take this guy out because he ain't quitting for nobody. On top of that as well, whenever he does try to strike he tries to get into boxing range doesn't really kick enough doesn't really like go for kicks he'll do them here and there but they have one kick happens like every two or three minutes or something but tries to get into boxing range and when he's in there he'll try to like throw a jab straight overhand he really likes throwing overhand shots especially against taller fighters and from there just trying to make the fight rough tough grimy and go from there but going into the weaknesses of al iaquinta one weakness that pops up is his stand-up. It's not very fluid. It's kind of stiff. It's kind of this tough man-ish, you know, which makes sense. He's been around for a super long time. And when you look at his striking and where it's been successful, it's been successful against washed-up dudes. So he's TKO'd Joe Lozon over the hill. He's TKO'd Diego Sanchez. And this was before Diego Sanchez moved up to 170, over the hill. He's uh, also... I can't think of who the other guy is that he TKO, but basically what I'm saying is against savvy strikers, Ally Quinta striking isn't necessarily the most serviceable. Now against Kevin Lee, he did good against Kevin Lee because Kevin Lee, he's a mess. So he was able to, Kevin Lee gasses inside, he was able to weather that storm and put it on him. On top of that as well, there's this angle of Ally Quinta bringing in takedowns. And the last time he attempted a takedown was in 2015, around that area because he took two years off before coming back and fighting Diego Sanchez. And why did he take those two years off? During that time, way before the, the podcast, Make That Money podcast came into inception, Ally Quinta was always on Ariel Hawani's MMA Hour, and he talked about how he hated the UFC. They never gave him money for knee operation. He always needed money for knee operations and such. His knee was jacked up and everything. And you could look at the metrics and like early, like in that 2015 and, and earlier, he was shooting for takedowns, going for takedowns, things of that sort. And now he just, he doesn't really go for him. He went for them against Cerrone, but they weren't convincing enough. Like they were just like, I'm going to bend my back, grab your ankle. Hopefully I take you down. And that's just not enough to, that's not enough skill to pay the bills. On top of that as well, Aquinta is hittable. Donald Cerrone showed it with strikes up the middle, knees up the middle and such. And Dan Hooker is just a quicker uh, Cerrone, even a more diverse Cerrone, if you want to call it that as well. And I'm going way back with this. When Jorge Masvidal fought Iaquinta, not only was he able to put quicker hands on Iaquinta, but when it, when Iaquinta tried to duck down and take Jorge down, Jorge was shooting knees up the middle and hitting Iaquinta. Going into the fight prediction, I see Dan Hooker winning this bout by decision. Dan Hooker, if he does finish Iaquinta, big feather in his cap. But Iaquinta's too damn tough. He's going to be in there from the opening bell to the last 10 seconds closing bell. And during that whole time, I see Dan Hooker just measuring him, keeping him on the outside, and just picking him apart. Looking at the info box over there, you can see like the five inch reach advantage Dan Hooker has, the two inch height advantage as well. I don't even think I Quinta's 5'10, but I mean, I digress. And I Quinta, can he win this bout? Yeah, if he employs his wrestling, but then it goes back to what I was saying like, is I Quinta's wrestling at a high enough level? to constantly take Hooker down and control him. And you got to keep in mind, too, Hooker's young. So how much has that takedown defense 
improve? Can I Quinta get inside? You got to think of all these questions if you're going to roster these guys. Dan Hooker is my guy. I like him. Five prediction-wise, he wins by decisions. In regards to the DraftKings, 8500 for Dan Hooker. I'm willing to pay for that. I'm willing to put him in a couple of GPPs because out of most of the $8,000 fighters besides Adesanya, I mean, I like him too, but he's more, I'm filling him more for like cash games and such because I don't really see like a high ceiling of him finishing Quinta. I see him just being patient, putting the strikes together and just winning a convincing decision. And Ali Quinta at 7,700, you can roster him, yeah, but then it's a bit too expensive. He won't get finished in, from what I expect, so he can salvage you points and hopefully give you enough, you know, bang for your buck in the loss. If he wins, then by, by God, man, like, you're good to go. Like, you're awesome. But 7700 a bit too expensive. I'll, I won't be touching him too much. Dan Hooker, I like him, especially for cash games. In the next bout, we have Tai Tuivasa at the DraftKings price of 9300 versus Sergey Spivak at the DraftKings price of 6900 And look at that Tai Tuivasa. He's currently coming off a two-fight losing streak to Gabloy Avanov and Junior Dos Santos. And what Tai brings to the table is this, he's a tough guy, super tough guy. There was a film, there was a fight I watched where he got heel hooked, got his knee torn up, and still hobbled, got after the guy and TKO'd him. And Tai Tuivosa, what he brings is he has technical striking, but then at the same time, he has like a tough man mentality to the technical striking. So he, he could pop shot a jab, throw a leg kick. He's pretty athletic. If you watch the Rashad Coulter fight, which was his first bout in the UFC, he hit Rashad Coulter with a flying knee and then finished him from there. And he's pretty quick for a big boy. Pretty damn quick for a big boy. And at the same time, like I mentioned, he can measure strikes and such. But when it's time to go in for the kill, he goes in and he throws combinations quick, fast, hard. And he doesn't seem to wane as fights progress, which looks good. If I go into any respective weaknesses with Tai Tuivasa, an opponent who comes in with a grappling heavy grant game plan can possibly give him issues. He got taken down by Rashad Coulter in his first bout, but then he was able to get right back up. But Rashad Coulter isn't much of a wrestler. I'm just saying if Spivak here came in with a wrestling intensive game plan, which happened to work, that can cause maybe a little bit of issues. Uh, another weakness as well with Tai Tuivasa is at times he gets overzealous. Like he'll stay technical, he'll stay smart, but at times he gets a bit overzealous and then that's when he gets sloppy, which really savvy heavyweights, especially on the feet, capitalize on it. Junior Dos Santos capitalized on the second round. Blagoy uh, capitalized on it in the entire three rounds he had with Tai Tuivasa. But looking at his opponent, Sergey Spivak, that guy does not fall into the same category. He's not some old grizzly heavyweight vet. He's been, uh, he's, he's about, I believe he's like a year or two younger than Tai Tuivasa. And Spivak, man, Spivak is a mess. Like, looking at his tape, in the regional scene, he was kicking ass. He has wingy punches. You know, he goes for takedowns. The punches aren't technical. The takedowns aren't technical. The guys who are fighting in the UFC, if you go to, like, his fightography, you could see, like, oh, they have winning records. But these guys are 45, 42, and they're just taking fights to get checks. And I'm not sure how serious the heavyweight MMA competition is from wherever he's from. Like, he fought a guy that was had 255 wins, 72 losses, and I think, like, eight draws. Like, come on, dude. There's got to be a bunch of jobbers in that respective record. But he's had one bout in the UFC against Walt Harris. And what I noticed from that bout going into his weakness is he loves to beat a hammer, especially when he's going against those jobbers in the regional scenes who are 42, 45. But when it's time for him to beat the nail, man, oh, man, he just, this is a, he, he just wilts. Like, whenever he, pressure comes at him, he just goes straight back. And whenever he goes straight back, he doesn't fight off the back foot. He doesn't look to counter. Looking at his fights per, per fi fight points per fight below here on the graphic, 0.5. That means in his last bout against Walt Harris, he only landed one significant strike, and he just got finished. And on top of that as well, he's taken a quick turnaround to face Tai Tuivasa. It wasn't like, okay, UFC's a new level. Let me take some time, get better. Like He's literally jumping back into this bout. I don't get it. Going to the fight prediction, Tai Tuivasa via... KO. He's going to get Spivak out of there. Spivak, he's not necessarily impressive. If Spivak had more time to get ready, then maybe I would give him a little bit better chance here. But the fact that he's coming back so quick, the fact that 
he's stationary. The fact that he doesn't make he doesn't have that same savviness on the feet like Blagoy or JDS did when they fought Tai Tuivasa. I think he's just coming out here to get dusted on and to get Tai Tuivasa back on track. Going to DraftKings, Tai Tuivasa at ninety three hundred is one of my favorite nine thousand dollar plays. I'm gonna be rostering everywhere. I expect a KO. I expect to have him come back ten x. You know, one hundred point performance. And Sergey Spivak at sixty nine hundred. Don't do it. Leave this guy alone. Let another sucker roster. In the next bout, we have Diego Lima at the DraftKings price of 8400 versus Luke Jamo at the DraftKings price of 7800 So Diego Lima is the older brother of the Bellator welterweight contender Douglas Lima, who will be fighting Roy McDonald later on this year. And Diego Lima, this is his second stint in the UFC. In his first stint in the UFC, it was okay. He was getting TKO'd. A couple of times against good strikers like Jingling Lee and Tim Means. So, I mean, no shame in that. Went to the regional scenes. He got TKO there as well. And he went on this Ultimate Fighter series. I think it was like Redemption or something. I, I don't know. But anyway, he got second place in that. And currently, he's riding a two-fight win streak. What does Diego Lima bring to the table? He brings pretty technical striking, especially in the boxing department. He pops a jab. He pops left hook. Those two punches lead the dances, lead the dance for Diego Lima. A lot of times as well, he's real measured with those shots. And whenever he is able to get into the respective range and he's able to use his reach, he fires the backhand pretty quickly. One thing I like about Diego Lima as well is every time he throws a boxing combination, he puts his hands right back up, which are definitely are definitely lessons he learned from getting TKO'd and KO'd in his previous bouts. Not recently, but like in his first stint in the UFC and in the regional scene as well. Another thing I do like about Diego Lima as well is that he brings a takedown threat. I believe he took down Court McGee. And if you watch his Ultimate Fighter contest as well, he's able to work takedowns in as well. And he's pretty serviceable on the ground, especially on the top. And on the bottom, he does attack submissions. And if he's not able to get it, he gets right back up as well. Another thing he does too, this is more of like a boxing terminology. He does like a lot of catching and shooting. So have his hands up and then whenever strikes come, he'll just catch the shot and then fire right back. And a lot of guys in the UFC have horde boxing and horde boxing fundamentals and simple stuff like that can carry you a long way. Now, going to his respective weaknesses is the chin. Now, whenever he's defensively responsible and he keeps his hands up and he's staying within his boxing shell and fighting technically, I don't worry about his chin as much. But looking at his past fight against Court McGee, whenever in that third round when he decided to open up and brawl for some stupid reason, Court McGee caught him, dropped him, but then round was over, fight was over, he won by split decision. Now, if he decides to come into this bout brawling, going crazy, being dumb, he can get caught, and he is a KO liability. Not like Polo Reyes. Not like that bad, but it's still, that that threat is still there. On top of that as well, in his two recent losses he took against Jesse Taylor and Yushin Nakami, those guys, like, absolutely wrestle-fucked him, like, took him down, controlled him and such. So if his respective opponent comes in with a high pedigree of wrestling and grappling, it could give Diego Lima some fits. But looking at Luke Jimmo, Luke Jimmo, he's been out for about, like I think, like a year and six months or something of that sort. Last time he fought was in 2018 against Dachi Abe. And what Luke Jimmo brings, besides being the hometown fighter, is he's a rough guy, rough, tough guy. Whenever he throws strikes, mm, they're somewhat technical, not too technical. Like, he throws big, wingy power shots. Doesn't throw them at a high rate. Kind of pot shots them, kind of like... He throws, I, I don't know the stat for his, his strikes per minute, but it's looking at the tape, it wasn't very high. So, and typically as well, his striking typically thrives if his opponent is not being active, just sitting out there with him and not really striking back. Or if his opponents don't know, they're striking ABCs. Another thing about Luke Jimmo as well is he is susceptible to takedowns. Now I'm going to his weaknesses. He is susceptible to takedowns, but... Mm, he can work to get back up, but if the guy has like good wrestling base, like good just rest, like ground fundamentals, it can give him issues as well. Another weakness with Luke Jimmo, besides being out for a while, is his striking sloppy, man. Look at the first round of the Dachi Abe bout. Dachi Abe is touching this guy up. He's touching him up. He's countering him. Every time Jimmo's trying to come in and tough man and throw these wingy overhand rights, wingy left hooks, Dachi Abe is just touching him up. And then Dachi Abe gas and... Luke Jimmo took the bout. Going to the fight prediction, I see Diego Lima, Lima winning this bout by decision. I think Lima's work rate 
the takedown threat, and his technical boxing will absolutely carry him out. Now, Diego needs to stay disciplined. If he decides to be stupid, if he decides to bang for the Australian fans and put on the show, he's going to give Jumo an opening to counter him and take him out. Yes, I know Lima's chin is a liability, but I lean towards his like striking fundamentals and such, carrying him along the way. And going to the drafting price, Diego Lima at 8400 that's a good price. I don't really see him having a super high ceiling unless he is able to catch Jumo and like sleep him and get him out of there. So I'm leaning on Diego Lima more towards cash plays or smaller GPPs, not for the bigger GPPs where you need like those big dogs to hit so you can make that money. And Luke Jumo at 7,800, I wish he was cheaper. He's a bit too expensive here, coming back for a while, sloppy striking and such. I mean, if I'm putting him in my roster, I'm hoping he gets a knockout because Diego Lima's work rate is way higher than Luke Jumo's and... That's where I lean on this respective matchup. In the next bout, we have Justin Taffa at the DraftKings price of 8300 versus Jorgen DeCastrio at the DraftKings price of 7900 So looking at Justin Taffa, I almost messed up on this. I was looking at tape, and I was like, damn, Justin Taffa's in shape. But it was actually his brother, Junior Taffa, who's a light heavyweight or middleweight, I believe. So thank God I didn't go all the way with that. I would have given y'all the wrong information. But anyway, I digress. Looking at Justin Taffa, he trains at the same team as Ty Tuivasa and Mark Hunt, and he's had two, three respective MMA bouts. And what he brings to the table is this forward pressure striking. Like, this guy is basically a bull in a china shop. Tries to come straight at you, those big winging hooks, big winging uppercuts. If it touches your chin, he doesn't just hit you once and looks at you and hopefully you go down. Like, he just tries to throw multiple strikes, hit you over the top, hit you on the head, knock you out, get you out of there. So he has that respective toughness. He does have that respective power. But looking at his respective weaknesses, when his first bout, uh, his first pro bout, he didn't show really good awareness on the ground. Like he was getting taken down. And whenever he got taken down, he didn't really know like how to go about like sweeping his opponent or getting back in a better position. Now, luckily for Tafa, the opponent he faced had even worse grappling IQ. So it was a mess down there until Tafa got on top of him and pounded him out. Another thing too about Tafa, I don't, discredit his power i'm not saying he doesn't have power it is heavyweight but the thing about him is most of the guys he's faced have been like these like slobs like these like fat dudes who are super easy targets to hit and most of his fights go pretty early like they end pretty early so it makes you wonder what will Toffel look like in a two three round bout like what will he look like when the fight progresses will he have enough stamina to go all three rounds in the UFC, or will he start to fade whenever he's throwing big power shots and stuff and he's missing and his opponent's picking him apart and things of that nature. And looking at his opponent, Jorgen DeCastro, he won a contract off of the Dana White Contender Series. And it was funny because I wasn't really able to find footage of that Dana White Contender Series bout, only highlights. But from what I saw from the highlights, he looked way different from what I saw from his like earlier tape. In his earlier tape, he looked sloppy. Like, he had power, but he would just throw quick overhand rights, spam leg kicks. This looked like an absolute mess. From interviews I heard with Yogan DeCastro, he said the guy that he's currently working with, I don't know his name off the top of my head, he's basically taking him to a path of making this more professional. Like, if you're going to come in here to the UFC and fight in the heavyweights and take this career seriously, you're going to have to clean up your game. And looking at that, the highlights of his uh, Dana White Contender Series bout, looks like he had strong calf kicks, real technical calf kicks. But spamming them, yeah, but then at the same time, if it ain't broke, why fix it, you know? On top of that as well, he just looked a lot more measured on the feet. And looking at his training footage as well, he does look uh, pretty measured, especially when he's hitting the bag and things of that nature. Now, if you go into respective weaknesses with Jorgen DeCastrio, it will be it's making his UFC debut. So how's he going to look? And he's traveling all the way to Australia, just in Taffa's backyard. So will he be able to deal with that travel? Will he be able to come in? And will all that bother him, especially as a debutante? We'll definitely see. Oh, another strength I forgot to mention with Jorgen DeCastro. Even though you see 5-0 compared to Justin Taffa's 3-0, he's had six amateur bouts. So he's coming in here with 11 bout experience. So you would think, hey, will he be able to take this bout for all three rounds and basically take off in the deep waters waters he's never been to going to the fight prediction i have jorgen de castro winning this bout by decision i know it's funny a decision in the heavyweight division but i think jorgen de castro is going to come in here fight smart not let tafa 
get him up against the cage or get him in situations where he can get caught. Definitely utilize his calf kicks. One thing I would mention about those calf kicks, he can't throw them singly. He can't throw them naked. He has to start mixing stuff up because if he just keeps throwing the calf kicks and that's it, I believe Tafa will be able to count the to time that and encounter him and possibly hurt him. It is heavyweight. And Jorgen DeCastro can possibly hurt Tafa as well. Going to the DraftKings price, Tafa at 8300 Tafa is definitely playable. It's the heavyweight bout. Tafa goes in there and he shows he's no joke and he catches Jorgen DeCastro and sleeps him. You get banged for the buck at 8300 I mean, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good boomer bush-ish kind of play. And Jorgen DeCastro at $7,900, it's kind of like the same the same pros and cons for Justin Tafa in regards to his price. Except I'm leaning more on Justin Tafa having more of the KO upside versus Jorgen DeCascio. Could he get a KO? Possibly, yeah. But then I believe he's going to have, like, Justin Tafa's going to come hard and fast in the beginning and try to get the job done. Versus Jorgen DeCascio is going to try to pick his shots, put stuff together, and then hopefully get, like, a second round, third round TKO. So definitely this matchup is worth looking into. Pick your side. Make that money. In the next bat, we have Jake Matthews at the DraftKings price of 9100 versus Ross, Rostam Ackman at the DraftKings price of 7100 So Jake Matthews lost his most recent bout to Rocco Martin. I believe that was about a year ago or so. And he's coming back to his backyard in Melbourne trying to avenge his loss that he took from Andrew Holbrook last time he was there. And he's making his 12th appearance in the UFC uh, octagon, but his fifth appearance in the UFC welterweight division. He's moved up a division. And what Jake Matthew brings to the table is he is a jiu-jitsu black belt. Now, he's definitely not Damian Maia. There's levels to, to being a black belt. So he's not like a Damian Maia or a Gordon Ryan or like <clears throat> some like high-level dude, you know? Like he's high-level, but like not like up there, up there like that. On top of that as well, he brings like a toughness. He comes at a straight line. He comes hard. He shoots takedowns, and he goes for him hard as well comes out a straight line in regards to that whenever he does throw strikes they're kind of sloppy but then at the same time they have popping them looking at the uh he dropped Rocco Martin in his most recent fight against Jing Ling Lee when he fought him he was able to like exchange and back Jing Ling Lee up in a couple of exchanges as well looking at Jake Matthews weaknesses though the thing is when the Rocco Martin fight it was weird I would say he was trying he respected Rocco Martin's ground game but he didn't come in as like crazy or marauding as he did in his previous 170 pound bouts on top of that as well his takedowns and his striking is in a straight line from a technical standpoint uh, if you're unless you're able to come in and take those guys out that could be easily read that could be easily countered and that could be easily adjusted for in the latter parts of the fight Another thing as well, whenever Jake Matthews does like fight crazy or go do things of that sort, he wanes. Like he goes hard in the first round, and the second and third round he'll go hard, but you kn you know, like it's not the same energy. I remember watching the tape for the Jingling Lee bout. Whenever uh, he took Jingling Lee down, I think like the first and second round, but in the third round, Jingling Lee was starting to like put hands on him, and there was a moment where he was looking up at the clock. If you see a fighter looking up at the clock, they're getting tired. They're getting tired. Their energy's waning, and then they're like, shit, this guy's still coming at me. Like, what's going on? You know what I mean? And the last thing I will mention about Jake Matthews' weaknesses is his striking. It's sloppy. It does have pop. But then a lot of times, his elbows are bowed out. He's winging shots. He's hoping he catches you. Like, his striking is the cousins of, uh, uh, I forgot that guy who fought John Phillips. It's ugly. That's all I'm trying to say. But looking at his opponent, Rostam Ackman, this is his sophomore appearance in the octagon. And Rostam, he took his last bout on short notice, I believe, against Sergey Kandoski, I believe the name was his opponent. And looking at his tape before that bout, <clears throat> it looked kind of can-crushing. He fought in the regional scene in Sweden, was whooping a lot of guys, taking them down, doing all that stuff. I'm like, this guy's a can-crusher. Like, come on, dude. Goes in against Sergey, and man, did this guy impress. He lost that bout, but he impressed. His footwork is good. Not like Israel Adesanya footwork or like, oh man, this guy's like an excellent, like, like you know, Dominic Cruz kind of footwork. Just really good fundamental footwork. Moves his feet. The striking is technical. It's not 
like measured it's kind of like a forward pressing technical striking but with that the striking and the footwork like he puts it together quite well and there was a situation as well where he got taken down and when he gets taken down he gets right back up and gets back on the footwork gets back on the striking this guy's work rate his cardio checked the fuck out it checked out i was really impressed he lost that bout but then there was tells that i noticed in that bout that i really liked as well one weakness i do notice with rostam is now he's facing tougher competition and such. But then, like I mentioned, those strengths, I kind of like that as well. He kind of holds his hands low, which is why in the Sergey bout, he got dropped, I believe, in the second round. In the third round, he got wobbled. So hopefully he learned from that in the full camp and said, okay, I need to start keeping my hands up. These guys aren't sweetest, sweetest bums. These are This is the UFC. So hopefully he cleaned that up as well. And uh, he does go for takedowns, but... Like I said, he was going against weak Swedish competition. So hopefully he's not coming in here and trying to utilize takedowns. But going to the fight prediction, underdog lock of this respective card, UFC 243, Rostam Achman by decision. This bout will be close. Hear me out. This bout will be close because we don't know what kind of Jake Matthews is going to show up. And even if Jake Matthews shows up looking like a marauder and going hard for takedowns and such, I believe Rossum's footwork and cardio will be able to meet him in the middle in that regard. And if Rossum is able to stuff the takedowns, stay technical on the feet, because Jake Matthews' wingy style will give him opportunities to put his strikes together and score, I believe Rossum takes it. Rossum has to be on his P's and Q's. Rossum has to be sharp. Rossum has to weather the storm, because there's definitely opportunities for Jake Matthews to take him down, use his top control, possibly submit him. But I believe, based on what I saw on the Sergey fight, I really like what Rostam brings to this respective bout. I'm leaning on it. And going into the DraftKings, 9,100 for Jake Matthews, be careful. If you're leaning him, if you want to play him, you can play him. I'm not saying he's going to get totally destroyed. He's definitely playable. But be careful because you don't know what kind of Jake Matthews you're going to get. You're going to get the one that went against... Uh, Anoiki, whenever he, he submitted him, or you're going to get the one who fought Rocco Martin or the one who fought Jingling Lee. Even though he did good in that bout, it was a back and forth bout. And with Rostam Ackman at 7,100, I'm going to be rostering this guy because there's a couple of $8,000 plays, $9,000 plays I like, and I need that low $7,000 base to give my roster some breathing room personally. If you don't feel good about the matchup, don't roster him. He's my underdog lock. I like this guy. He's going to shock a lot of people. You heard it here first on the Make That Money podcast. In the next bout, we have Maki Batolo at the DraftKings price of 9000 versus Callum Potter at the DraftKings price of 7200 So Maki Batolo, he also won his Dana White Contender Series bout. He won a contract, and he's making his UFC debut here at UFC 243 in Australia. And what he brings to this respective bout is forward pressure. Really good forward pressure. It's steady. He keeps his hands high. And whenever he comes forward, he has very basic boxing. But here's the thing I'm going to emphasize with that. He strikes the head and the body, especially the body. Strikes the head and the body. And when his opponent is up against the cage, he can transition into takedowns quite easily. Go for the takedowns, hit him. And whenever he's on the ground, his transitions are good from the bottom and from the top. And he gets the dominant positions. He looks to finish. He has submissions on his records. He has finishes on his records. And he's a young kid. And his Dana White Contender Series bout against uh, Smother or something. Some black some black guy named Smother. But anyway, he literally went in there, pressured him, and hit him with a good one-two. Got him up against the cage and started ripping body shots. TKO'd him that way. Looked really impressive in that regard. If you look at the weaknesses of Mikey Patolo, he doesn't really move his head. It makes, I mean, I'm happy he, he does keep, keep a high guard. But he doesn't really move his head. So sharper strikers who can like throw nice straight punches and stuff can touch him. And in this regional tape, he's been wobbled, hurt, and KO'd. I mean, he's only lost four times. But I believe out of those four losses, two of them or three of them are by KO. So that's a concern. On top of that as well, sometime in his one loss that he had by submission, <clears throat> he was dominating the bout. And he showed a mental lapse on the ground where he went back into his opponent and got guillotined. Now, you could say he was young. He is a young guy, so hopefully he learned from that. But looking at his opponent, Callan Potter, I mean, what can I say about this guy? He's tough. He's scrappy. He's 35 years old. He's living his dream. He's fighting in Australia and such. And looking at his regional tape, he's fought jobbers. He's beaten jobbers. 
and recently he's had he's making his sophomore debut. I mean sophomore appearance in the octagon, and he went against Jalen Turner, and Jalen Turner just pieced him up. I mean the only thing I can say about Callum Potter is scrappy guy, tough guy, and if you don't mind your p's and q's on the ground, he can catch you. But if you have some general awareness, you can block most of his shit. Going to his weaknesses, this guy's stand-up sucks. It's not good. Bows his elbow out. His body's open. His head is open. This guy's a punching bag. Put it together. Get the job done. On top of that as well, he's slow. Super slow. And it makes sense. 35 years old. He's an older guy. I believe he got into the UFC too late in his career, in my opinion. And another thing as well is if you put pressure on this guy, forward pressure, or if you just take him to the ground and pressure him and you're aware, you can... You can handle him pretty easily. Going to the fight prediction, Maki Patolo by finish, whether by sub or TKO, whatever he choose, he's going to get Callum Potter out of there. The only way I see Callum Potter winning this bout is if he catches Maki Patolo with a shot due to what I mentioned earlier about Maki Patolo not really moving his head as much. He does keep a high guard. He does keep his hands up, but he doesn't really move his head, so he's hittable in that regard. And if Maki Patolo just has a mental lapse on the ground and gives Callum Patolo a... Uh, uh, I'm Callum Potter, I meant to say. An arm bar or choke or something, I could see that. But, I mean, when pigs fly, man, Patolo's going to finish him. $9,000, Maki Patolo is another one of my favorite $9,000 plays. I really have two favorite $9,000 plays on here. Tai Tuivasa and Maki Patolo. They're going to be the base of my respective lineup. And then I'm going to build my roster from there. Really like these two guys. Really like Mikey Patolo here. I think he's going to give you a finish. He's going to get the job done. And Callum Potter at 7,200. If he was 60, if he was 6,000, which that's never going to be a pricing on DraftKings, I'd mess with him. But 7,200, forget about it, man. You, you might as well mess with my underdog lock of the night. Rostem Ackman, not Callum Potter. Leave him alone. In the next bout, we have Brad Riddle at the DraftKings price of 8600 versus Jamie Malarkey at the DraftKings price of 7600 And looking at Brad Riddle, he trains at City Kickboxing with Israel Adesanya and Dan Hooker and Kai Kawa France as well. And he and Jamie Malarkey are coming into this bout short notice. I listened to an interview where he mentioned that he only had three weeks to get ready for this bout, both of them at least. So you got two debutantes coming into this getting ready and, and showing up and Let's see what happens. But looking at what Brad Riddle brings to the table, he's had a lot of Muay Thai fights, had a lot of kickboxing fights. I believe he fought for Glory, and uh, I forgot what the other promotion is, but like a lot of a lot of fights. And when you watch this guy on the tape, he puts his combinations together. He's not super smooth, but then when he throws, he throws the crack. And not only does he throw the crack, you're going to notice this about me, man. He throws to the body. I love it. I love when you go to the body, man, because that pays the dividends right there. Not enough UFC fighters do it, but I digress. But he goes to the body. He does mix up leg kicks and such. Like, when he throws, he throws with power. And his cardio checks out. So it's not like he's throwing with power and then his cardio is going to hell and things of that sort. This bout is taking place at 155. He does fight at 170, and he's coming down. So he's going to be the bigger guy, presumably. And on top of that as well, with Brad Riddle, he did fight Kenyon Song in the regional scene, who uh, just beat Derek Krantz, and he TKO'd him. But if you go into the weaknesses of Brad Riddle, his one loss came by armbar, and his takedown defense is in question. I wasn't able to find a lot of footage where he was getting wrestle-fucked, or even find that footage where he did suffer that one lone loss. It just wasn't out there. I was looking everywhere. And from other fights that I've seen... He was able to stuff takedowns, but you could tell he lets guys get a little bit too deep on the hip. Or he lets guys clap their hands a little bit too much. But I'm going to trust that he's cleared all that up and such, and he's cleaned all that up with City Kickboxing, and he's able to defend whatever bring uh, Jimmy Malarkey brings. And looking at his opponent, Jimmy Malarkey, like I mentioned before, he's taking his bout on short notice again uh, with Brad Riddle. And with Malarkey... He fights at featherweight. Most of his bouts have been at featherweight, and he's moving up to 155. So he's going to be the smaller guy, not by like a, substan a substantial amount, but like just smaller guy, you know, weight-wise or whatever. And what he brings to the table, he's a, he's a scrappy guy. Scrappy guy, pushes the pace, comes forward, cardio checks out, goes hard, goes for takedowns. Like he hunts for those takedowns, tries to get them, works on the feet, Whenever he is in trouble, whenever he's getting takedown stuff, he just he's a scrapper, man. Like he's he's gonna fight for your money, basically. But looking at his respective weaknesses, <clears throat> it is the stand up. There's times where he gets a bit too wild, he gets a bit too zealous, and he's open to get hit. And even if he's not getting zealous and he's trying to stay technical, 
his strikes don't really desire much. Like you could see Jamie Malarkey just wants to take the belt to the ground, control you, work top game, and then hopefully get a t- like pound you out, get a TKO from there, or uh, put submissions on you. Also, at the same time as well, the competition that he's been facing in his respective Australian scene hasn't been the most strongest competition. But then at the same time, what are you going to do? You got to beat who you got to beat in front of you. Going to the fight prediction, I see Brad Riddell winning this bout by a late TKO. Now, the takedown defense of Brad Riddell is definitely a mystery. It's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration before rostering him in your respective DraftKings lineup because... I'm leaning towards he's improved. He's gotten everything cleaned up. If Israel Adesanya has improved and you're training with that guy every day and Dan Hooker's takedown defense, hopefully, against Aya Quinta has improved, then I'm assuming iron sharpens iron in this case and his has improved as well. But that's something that definitely needs to be looked into and it definitely makes Jamie Molarkey very rosterable, very playable in this respective bout. But back to the uh, fight prediction. I see Brad Riddell being able to stuff the takedowns. Keep it on the feet. There's going to be a couple of clinch exchanges which slow the fight down and things of that sort. But if Brad Riddell is able to keep this fight on the feet, keep it in space, work his work, he'll get Jamie Malarkey out of there. He'll be able to put the strikes together and take him out. Going into DraftKings, Brad Rill at 8,600. He definitely is rosterable, but please keep in mind in regards to the takedown defense because I wasn't able to get a lot of tape to see, oh, how did he look in that loss? Or how did he look in other fights? whenever uh, he was getting taken down or anything of that sort. Like, there was a little bit of evidence there, but not enough to draw, like, a major conclusion on this. But I believe that if he's able to play his game and put his hands together on Jimmy Malarkey, he'll take him out. And Jimmy Malarkey at 7,600, he's definitely playable. Just because of that takedown angle that I was emphasizing with Brad Riddell earlier. And can he exploit that? And like I said before, his cardio and everything else checks out as well. So with that information... Take it, make your move, make that money. In the next bout, we have Megan Anderson at the DraftKings price of 9400 versus Zara Fryan Dos Santos. I'm just going to go with Zara Dos Santos at the DraftKings price of 6800 Megan Anderson has been an absolute disappointment. Now, in regards to her gaining Instagram followers and posting booty pics and such, she's been absolutely phenomenal in that regard. But in regards to her actual fighting career in the UFC, she's been one in, she's one and two. And this hasn't looked impressive. But going to her strengths, she's a tall girl, big girl for the 145-pound division. Like, she's a she's an Amazonist, basically, standing at six feet tall. On top of that as well, she primarily looks to strike. She, she's pretty measured. She likes to throw the kicks, especially, like, head kicks, body kicks, things of that sort. And whenever her opponent comes forward or whenever she's pressing forward, she'll pop a jab. But her favorite punch to throw is the overhand right. She likes to throw that as well with power and such. And her knees up the middle are, are pretty, that, that strike is pretty slick. She hit Holly Holm with it a couple of times. But going to this girl's weaknesses, man, takedown defense. BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu grappling game from the bottom and the top. Takedowns in and of itself, all of it garbage. Not good whatsoever. Now, in her last battle against Felicia Spencer, she got taken down, controlled, worked. It wasn't good. Felicia Spencer's a black belt. Sure, you can give her a New York pass on that. Beats Cat uh, Singano. Well, she scratched Cat Singano's eye, so whatever. And against Holly Holm, got wrestled against Holly Holm. Holly Holm, a wrestler. Think about that. You listening on the podcast, think about that. Holly Holm, a wrestler, taking this girl down repeatedly. I was there live. I went to that fight, UFC 225 in Chicago. I saw that. Her getting constantly taken down. It was a mess. It wasn't good. On top of that as well, for all my hardcores out there, Cindy Dadanos, you remember her. She's a mess. Took Megan Anderson down and submitted her. Now, looking at her opponent, Zara Dos Santos, this girl don't get a pass either. She hasn't fought in two years. On top of that as well, uh, the competition she's faced in the regional scene hasn't been very strong. Megan Anderson's going to be the biggest opponent she's ever faced. Looking at her strengths, you know, she pops a strike here, you know, a jab here, straight here, a leg kick here, things of that nature. But it's just, whenever I was watching her tape, I'm like, do you have any kind of grappling? Do you have any sort of grappling age, edge? None whatsoever. Going to the fight prediction, Megan Anderson wins this by decision. Now, one thing I did notice from Zara's Instagram that I forgot to mention was, with those two years off, it showed her training with Ale- Alexander Gustafson's team, and it showed her training at uh, the, uh, the Floyd Mayweather gym. 
So you got to keep in mind, like, how much better has she improved in the stand-up? Well, we'll have to see fight night. But at the same time, if she does bring in grappling, which I did not see from any of the tape I watched with her, and I watched, like, eight fights of her, then is this going to be a stand-up bout which favors Megan because Zara hasn't faced an opponent this big, and Megan, I feel like, will be able just to keep things on the outside and pick shots apart. She's fighting in her home country, so you can also play that in the factor as well. But Zara can make things interesting if she comes out here and she's able to double up on strikes and her striking looks good, or she comes in here with a grappling intensive game plan. But I'm going to lean Megan Anderson in this bout just because of how Zara has looked from what I described earlier, and I don't even feel comfortable about that. Going to DraftKings, Megan Anderson at 9400 don't pay the price. Macy Kiazan, she finessed us last week. Hardcore finessed us. And I made up a rule. If you if you follow me on Twitter, I made a, I made a new rule. Unless you're Nunez, and I'm not even sure about Nunez because she's fighting Jermaine uh, uh, Duranamy, and that's a later breakdown. But unless you're Amanda Nunez or Cyborg, and you're, if you're Cyborg, you're not facing a Nunez, obviously. I'm not paying. I'm not paying up for you, man. I'm just not like these, these, these women fighters. It's scary, dude. Like you can roster Megan Anderson, but please, please, please be cautious. Don't put her. Don't be heavily exposed to her. Now, if she gets the KO and such, good for you. You took the gamble. This is what it, this is what it's about. But I don't trust her. And looking at Zara Dos Santos at 6,800, you could take a little stab. You could take a little pip squeak because I don't think she's gonna get necessarily finished. And if she does, it won't happen early. It'll probably be like later on in the fight or something. But at 6,800, that's an that, that's a that's enough to to tickle the pickle. You know what I mean? That's enough to put in your lineup and see what she does and how she gets the job done. But overall, man. I'm only gonna like I'll roster. I'm only gonna have tiny, tiny exposure to this bout. Be careful with this bout. It's women's MMA. You know what it is. In the next bout, we have Jim Ying Kim at the DraftKings price of 8,700 versus Nadia Kasim at the DraftKings price of 7,500. And looking at, I'm gonna call her Kim. Looking at Kim at 8,700, she hasn't fought in a year and she's coming down. She fought last time she fought. She fought at 135, which is the uh, women's bantamweight division. But now she's coming down to the women's flyweight division. And she primarily boxes. She pops the jab, waits, 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 moves her head, pops the jab, tries to slide in, get into boxing range, things of that nature. And once she's able to get close enough, she'll try to pop a straight. She primarily boxes. That's what she typically does. Um, in the clinch, she's pretty strong. And unless like you're a super strong girl, like Pudalova, who she lost to, or Antonina Shevchenko, which was her last bout, she lost to her as well. Most of the time when girls clinch up with her and try to take her down, she's able to handle them. If the girls are low tier. If they're like high tier competition or just bigger girls, then you can have your way with Kim from time to time. Looking to the weaknesses of Kim, it's her activity. She doesn't throw a lot of volume. She Her two wins in the UFC have came via split decision. Now, looking at the tape, she did win those fights you know, convincingly to me. 29-28-ish kind of thing, but if you're going to split decisions in your two wins, it kind of makes things dicey, especially if you're going into your opponent's hometown and fighting her. On top of that as well, she doesn't shoot takedowns, which that's going to come into play when I break down Nadia. Another thing as well with Kim is coming down to 125, will this make her work rate go up? How will she look? Things of that nature. These are all things you have to consider if you want to roster Kim. And looking at Nadia Kasim, Nadia Kasim, she got some DSLs. You know what I mean? Y'all know what them DSLs are? Nadia Kasim got them by the spades. On top of that as well, I thought I was watching, uh, I watch, what's that porn star's name? Mia Khalifa or something? Mia Khalif? I'm probably butchering the name. But I thought that's who Nadia Kasim is. It might as well be because the way this girl fights is awful. It's not good whatsoever. I mean, she throws these kicks, which if you just stand there like her uh, Alex Chambers did, which was her first fight she had in her respective UFC career. She can double up on them. Like, she'll kick you here, kick you here. It's like, like the way she lands her kicks is similar to, like, her her work in the bag. Like, if you're just working a stationary bag and kicking it, she's able to score points in that direction. On top of that as well, uh, on the bottom, whenever she's, like, on the bottom, on the ground, when she gets taken out or whatever, uh, her hip dexterity is pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty flexible. She's able to, you know, go for arm bars, she gave, she's able to go for uh, um, triangle chokes, 
whenever you know her opponent doesn't have the good top pressure, she's able to create scrambles by going for heel hooks, things of that nature. I mean, the hip dexterity makes sense, you know, especially with the Mia Khalifa, Mia Khalaf, whatever her name is, the porn star, that comparison. I'm getting off track, man. Going into the weaknesses of Nadia Kasim, you pressure this girl like Montana De La Rosa did in the last bout, this girl wilts. Like, she needs the kicking range. Her punches are garbage, man. This hand drops. This hand goes straight. And then after that, I think she her, her, her punch rate's really bad. She needs to kick you. She needs to fight to go steady. On top of that as well, if you're able to take her down, because her takedown defense is awful. If you're able to take her down and pressure her, her jiu-jitsu game gets shut down. And she's you can submit her, basically. Another weakness as well, and this just, it's not really fight-related, but, like, I, I listened to an interview with her, and she was talking about how She's into modeling and things like that and everything. And it just makes me... Like, how serious are you about fighting? Like, are you just using UFC and the thirsty UFC fans to basically push your modeling agenda? So, it just makes you wonder, like, would she fight for your money? But going to the fight prediction, I have Kim winning this bout by decision. But here's where I have my concerns with Kim. The work rate and the lack of takedowns. If Kim comes in here taking her uh, Nadi Kassim down... And if her work rate on the feet gets picked up, because I believe Kim can come forward and put this fight in the box range, pressure Cassium, and if she's able to do that, she'll be able to control the stand-up. But if she's just standing out there, diddle-daddling, doing her grocery list, Nadia and Cassium can like land like little point-ticky kind of kicks and such. And if this fight goes to split decision, again, in Nadia Cassium's backyard, I could see them being like, hey, like I'll just give it to her because she's cute. Or she's from Aussie or whatever the case may be. But I see Kim technically handling Cassium, winning this bout by decision. When she when the betting lines opened up, she was an underdog. But now she's been bet up to like a minus 170 favorite or something of that sort. Check your sports book. And going to the DraftKings price, 8700 for Kim. Forget about it, dude. Like, I think she's going to win. But for the reasons I listed in the fight prediction, I'm not paying 8700 for Kim. I'd rather pay for some of these other $8,000 guys or the next guy we're going to break down rather than Kim. Because, like I said, if this fight gets dicey and it goes back to the Beacon Anderson thing, like if, like if these these women MMA fighters BS, dude, your lineup is going to suffer. Yes, you can roster her, but I would do it in cash games. I wouldn't really mess with her in GPPs unless like you're in a quarter one or something. But in cash games, like double ups and such, you know, if you want to get some of that Kim, then you could definitely put her in a roster. Now, Dee Kassim at 7,500, she's interesting just simply due to if Kim comes out here and BSs, doesn't go for takedowns, which from the tape, I, I Kim doesn't really go for takedowns at all, then Cassium could sneak a split decision win or a 29-28 win or something of that sort. You know, she probably sleep on one of the judges. You never know. But anyway. 7,500, she's rosterable, but that's only if you're on that speculation train. Oh, under Other than that, I'm avoiding this fight as well on DraftKings. And then the final bout, the curtain jerker, we have Khalid Taha at the DraftKings price of 8,900 versus Bruno Silva at the DraftKings price of 7,300. And looking at Khalid Taha, this is his third appearance in the octagon. He recently fought uh, Boston Salmon, slept that boy quick. He was an underdog as well. He paid back big time. In that big time uh, knockout he scored. And he fought uh, Nadi Nasaram or the, the guy who trains at ATT. Man, I'm butchering names, whatever. Yeah, so he uh, he fought him and he got he got grappled. He got grappled to hell. Got taken out a lot. What Kalad brings in here, he, he swings, he bangs, man. Like he, he loads up those big hooks, big strikes and stuff. He goes for your head. He tries to take you out, tries to put you to sleep, try to get the fans excited. On top of that as well. Whenever he does get taken down, he does work to get back up. But going into his respective weaknesses, it's just takedown defense. It's not really strong, especially if the opponent has grappling or wrestling chops. It can really disrupt his stand-up game, and it can really slow the fight down as such. Now, when he gets back up, he still goes for your head, but then it's just like, it's not like the Boston Salmon fight where that fight was put together because both of them are strikers, and Taha did what he needed to do. And looking at Bruno Silva, Bruno Silva is making his UFC debut. And he fought on the Ultimate Fighter uh, Brazil or some, something like that. And it was really hard to get footage of his most recent fights. Because the most recent fight I was able to fight, find on Bruno Silva was the seven-second knockout where he got head kicked to hell. And he was sent to the shadow realm, basically. It wasn't pretty. But from what I saw from Bruno Silva, patient striker, you know, 
you know, stands up straight, kind of works and such. He's pretty quick, you know, small guy, but he's pretty quick as well. He likes to throw like spinning kick techniques. And when he throws punches, he likes to throw punches over the top and work that kind of way as well. Um, he did go to a draw to Casey Kenny. That's something that's super duper interesting. He went to a draw with Casey Kenny and not like a recent bout, but in his bout. And Casey Kenny just recently beat uh, 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 Manny Bermudez. Yeah, he beat Manny, Manny Bermudez and uh, Ray Borg. So that's a fact that you cannot ignore. You just can't write him off like that. On top of that as well, he trains with Henry Cejudo. He works with his grappling and such because Bruno Silva does go for takedowns, as I saw from the tape whenever he was fighting on his ultimate fighter bouts as well. He can get knocked out, as we saw. He holds his hands pretty low, so you can definitely hit him in that regard as well. There's a couple of bouts in the ultimate fighter uh, fights that I saw where guys were throwing shots over the top and it touched him here and there. But then it's just a, it's a mystery of what he's going to bring to this bout. Going to the fight prediction, I'm going to go with Kalad Taha getting winning this bout by TKO, KO. Just because even though Bruno Silva may possibly come in here with a grappling intensive game plan to get Taha to the ground and control him and such, he's not as a... Uh, Bruno Silva doesn't come with the same pedigree or size as Nadi Na, Nadia Nasaram or something. I forgot the guy's name. Doesn't come with those same chops. Doesn't come with those same credentials. Like Nadia, he trains at... Uh, what you want to call it? He changed that uh, Team Alpha Male. Team Alpha Male. So I don't see him coming in here with the same credentials, even though he's trading with Henry Cejudo. So we don't we don't know, you know. But I see Kali Taha coming in here, controlling this debutante from the distance, putting the hands on him, taking him out, and returning favor. But now going to the DraftKings, Kali Taha eighty nine hundred is the first time he's been drafted. He's been priced pretty high, pretty close to the nine thousands. Please take into consideration the grappling weakness that I mentioned with Taha. On top of that as well, Bruno Silva probably bringing that into this bout. I don't believe it's going to be as efficient as Kala, uh, Taha's uh, debut bout against Nadim, but at the same time, something to seriously consider if you want to put Kala Taha in your respective lineup. And Bruno Silva at 7,300, that's worth the stab to see, hey, does he come out here and does he you know wrestle for Kali Taha and does he sneak a decision and get the job done? Or is he just going to be a walking KO victim? You make the choice, my peoples. And that is the breakdown of UFC 243 King's session number 15. Thank you all for joining me. If you like this video, please share it. Please subscribe. Please. Let's make this thing grow, man. Let's make it big. Like I mentioned before, every 100 subs this channel gains, we do a live stream. We're hitting that goal close to 200. And on top of that as well, I forgot to mention... What do y'all want to live stream once we hit 200 subs? Y'all want to do the BMF title between Nate and Masvidal? Or do y'all want to do the three-headed monster UFC 245 of Kobe Covington, Amanda Nunez, and Max Holloway? Y'all let me know, man. Y'all holler at me, man. Thank you guys so much. Gave y'all the information. Go out there. Construct those lineups. Hit them bookies over the head. And make that money.